a main man is St Arnold of Soissons. He was the patron of hop pickers and did legitimately revolutionise brewing using apiary equipment. He multiplied beer off the roof of the abbey, caved in and destroyed most of the ales. Famously told people to drink the beer instead of water, thus saving thousands of people from cholera. St Arnold of Metz shared more than just a name with St Arnold of Soissons. They also shared many of the same beer-related miracles, although he did stir his brew with a crucifix, thus doubly blessing it. He's also quoted as saying, from man's sweat and God's love, beer came into the world. St Bridget of Ireland is the patron saint of several things, including dairymaids, cattle, midwives and newborns. But she had a love of beer and famously transformed the bathwater of a leper colony into a sudsy brew. Her famous quote is, I should like to take a great lake of beer for the King of Kings. I should like the angels of heaven to be drinking it through time eternal. St Nicholas of Myrna was very busy indeed. He's the patron saint of sailors, repentant thieves, children and prostitutes, as well as being jolly old St Nick. Yeah, that's St Nick. Gives a whole new validity to spiked eggnog. St Wenceslas, that is good King Wenceslas to you and me, protected Bavarian hops by outlawing their export. This helped protect local beer production, but may have got him killed at a young age. St Augustine of Hippo not only preserved civil society after the fall of Rome, he's the saint of drinkers. This isn't because of anything he did, no, it's more because he was such a prolific drinker before his conversion. St Luke not only wrote one whole gospel and the book of Acts, he's also the patron saint of physicians, surgeons, artists, bachelors and brewers. He didn't brew anything, but as a doctor we assumed he prescribed beer over water for health reasons. Hi, I'm Jacob Koller. And I'm Rain Weigel. Welcome to Outside, Inside Out, the show where we take the necessary step back to find out what's going on on the inside. We ended our last episode by looking into the lives of a couple of people that have heavily influenced the way we drink, two Christians that have played a role, an interesting role in, in, in the way we drink with an interesting backstory to how they got there. Mm-hmm. And today, I feel like the goal, or our goal will be, to go through the brief history of beer in particular and the church's involvement in it. Because there's probably no drink on earth that has been influenced more by the church than beer. And not, but it's not just the beer. It's also, you know, as we've discussed, it's the whole reasoning behind it. And how you and I are so surprised that even churches throughout the millennium and especially our, the current churches, how, they're knowingly or unknowingly branching into what these monks did and solving some of the exact same problems and trying to meet the needs of their community and how beer is being embraced again by the church. Beer is just unusually central to the church for an, what was for a long time. And that's mm-hmm. hard for us to imagine these days. Really hard. But that's what we're going to attempt to do. We're going to attempt to outline that a little bit. And then get into some of the thoughts and reasoning behind that, because that's what you do when you take the necessary step back to look out for what's really happening on the inside. I'm going to get better at that. I I, I think you nailed it. (laughs) Good. (laughs) We started off by giving this rundown of saints. That's also to emphasize the strong tie. You know, if you don't have saints, if you don't have 
holy people involved, you can probably just toss it off to the side a little bit. The fact that there was more than one saint, for there's a, actually a whole lot of stories aside from that that are involved with with saints and beer, emphasizes that beer was important not only to the people that made it, but to the community around it. Yeah, That's sort of how the idea of saints work, something that's important, that's required. A uh, saint usually did a miracle associated with it. He made it possible for that people could have it. Yeah. And so therefore we can conclude that it was an important thing and an important commodity and an important person. I don't know if people know this, but to become canonized as a saint, you, there has to be a validated miracle of, that would have happened. Right, and I'm surprised yes. as we go through those lists with those saints, like a lot of them have miracles, like healings and different things that happened. But quite a few of those miracles were actually beer related, like specifically to the beer itself or the brewing of. So it was that important. Like, hey, that guy saved the entire brewery <laughs> or he, he that whole batch was rescued because of you know, St. Arnold. And it's it's I find that so fascinating. Yeah, like the roof caved in or something and. And then yeah. the beer was saved, N- not the building. The beer was saved, and then beer was saved. Yeah, yeah. building was a goner, and everyone knew that. But Saint Arnold, he he got the beer. Yeah, and, and I think that just also pokes at the idea that we just need to touch on as well the importance of alcohol in these communities. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't quite get that these days either. Now beer is alcoholic, but. There's a history with the production of alcohol in general that we also, I feel like we also just need to touch on. So let's start there. Let's just start on the history with alcohol a little bit because it goes back a little bit before the way we drink beer now. Is that a good Mm -hmm. plan? I like it. It's good because we sort of wrote it down that way, so you should agree with it. (laughs) Seems amazing to me. Oh, wait, I wrote it. (laughs) So... Let's go back to the production of alcohol as a, at, in its very beginning. I'm not 100% sure if we mentioned it in the other episode or if we did in any depth. But alcohol is sort of a product that sort of came out of a discovery that if you left something with sugar content in water for an extended period of time, it would ferment and become alcoholic. And the alcohol probably specifically wasn't known, but what they did realize is that that product would make you a bit fun. <laughs> yeah. So, so the speculation... Even parties in Mesopotamia needed, uh, needed a little a little grease. Yeah, I get it going. social grease to get going. And, that, and they did that by leaving a bucket of grain, letting it fill up with water in the rain, and finding out that, here we go, we've got a bit of vibe picked up a little bit everything's a little bit better than it was before drinking what was in that vat (laughs) and that's sort of what they some people suggest was the beginning of the agrarian revolution actually is they wanted to produce this Mm. beer because that feeling of of vibe (laughs) that goodness the the buzz yeah was considered something almost a little bit spiritual and special so they really wanted to uh, um, emulate it as much as they could so so that's that's one whole i guess widely accepted concept of how the agrarian revolution began in the aptly named fertile crescent because i've been in that area and it's as dry as any place i've ever been to it's true between the two rivers you're really heavily relying on those rivers to make it fertile yeah it's 
Mm. Who we'd argue with? <laughs> Who we'd argue with all mm. of historical documentation? Outside Inside Out is proud to be sponsored by Dad's Beer Cozy. Are you tired of getting flack from your dad or uncles, or grandparents, every time you show up to a family function with your far superior microbrew? Well, now you can hide that away along with your feelings in a perfectly replicated beer cozy. The inside, just like yourself, will be better and nuanced. The outside will be a Budweiser can, a PBR, and a Bud Light. Soon, others to come. Also, available in bottles. Dad's Beer Cozy. Order one now. So, yeah. Another sort of drink that we are going to talk about more in, a, in another episode, and we mentioned already, but it became more important, let's say, with the church initially, and obviously in the Bible it comes up on a number of occasions. If you haven't read my mind, and if I haven't made it clear, what I'm talking mm-hmm. about is wine. I need to touch on that a little bit. Okay. Because wine is probably the easiest natural thing to ferment into alcohol. Uh, in fact, it... it it is. If you cr- is. crush some grapes, leave them in a bucket, put them in a warmish place, you will make wine and it will be alcoholic. Yeah. Grapes have everything required inside them to make that transformation from grape juice to wine. Sort of also why it's a bit funny with the claims and all that. that well, the claims that you know well, Rain, that wine in yeah. the Bible wasn't alcoholic because it almost no, no, immediately... No, new up. wine. New wine. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. Jesus made new wine. It was that's like basically grape juice. Yeah. 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 And then, and so go on. <laughs> Jacob, would you, would you would you say that that there's essentially the Trinity needed to within grapes just to make the wine? The Trinity is in the grapes. So you have the Yes. The, the, you do. And it's a, it's an amazing image of of completeness. <laughs> Try not to say this sarcastically. <laughs> you try not to. I mean, it's, it's it's still one grape, but it's three different things. So the the grapes, sugars, the grape has always the grape is always attracting yeast to its skin. The yeast is trying to eat into the sugar that's inside the grape. So when the grape is crushed, the the juice will come out. The, it will lose its um, firm structure, and the yeast will continue to eat on that more concentrated form of the sugar. The byproduct of what the yeast produces is CO2 and alcohol. I believe the CO2 are the farts of the yeast, um, and that's sort of how it works. And then you, yeah, so you have a, you have this thing that is alcoholic, uh, and is very important to the culture because alcohol actually preserves things, and it has antiseptic qualities, and therefore was an advanced medicinal product in that time, in, in particularly even up until the Middle Ages. It was the advanced, guaranteed, easy-to-get, sterilized material that was made yeah. possible. So it's a sterilized material. What do you call it? Sterilized, uh, what's that word? I'm moving my hands. The word that what you're you... washing your hands? <laughs> I've done that so much in the last two years, they're dry. Yes. <laughs> I've lost um, age. Lost. Yes, I've got the face of a 50-year-old in the hands of an 80-year-old. Yeah, they didn't, they didn't warn us about that. Commodity, commodity. It, 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 it's an important commodity. 
Yes. Yeah. That's that's the right word. It has nothing to do with hand washing, but it's a good word. All that is to say, monks found it incredibly important and incredibly worthwhile, and it was part of good monking to invest in creating alcohol for the community. Hmm. In the southern parts of Europe, where grapes grow much more easily and much more naturally, a lot of them invested in wine, uh, and that was the that yeah. was the thing. You're talking about all those Italian types and yeah, up. the French, Italian, Spanish—they were all able to to produce a, a superior grape and and a much more drinkable wine. And I'm not saying that because I I hate German wines, but I hate German wines. They're just so sweet, too but, sweet, too sweet for me. They have the trocken. They call it. Oh. That's dry. Is it dry? Okay. Well, I'm trying it next time. Over. Try and open your mind a little bit. <laughs> um, um. Yeah. So, and then above the sort of line where, you, let's say, you draw a line from Austria, Belgium, you know that that mm-hmm. that area. I think anything above that is where graves were difficult to grow, and in that area, beer became the go-to alcohol that they really invested in probably did more investing and more work than mm-hmm. the monks that just continued to make wine because wine is a little bit more straightforward. I think what's, what's um, fascinating is, you know, beer differs slightly from wine, um, as you would suggest. And they, they came up, one of the monikers that the monks came up with was liquid bread. That when they were making a beer, it was liquid bread. And that, that alluded to um, not like a lager or anything like that, but, um, it was a thick brew. It contained reasonable levels of vitamin B, nicotine, not nicotine. <laughs> not nicotine. <laughs> Nicene. <laughs> yeah. That's... You said that so confidently. I did. I did. That's... <laughs> vitamin B, Nicene, folates, iron, proteins, and fibers. Uh, it also contained electrolytes. And quite a few calories, as we all know. Um, it was surprisingly nutritious and sustaining. And they could, they made a, a product that, you know, it could sustain people uh, and get them through, even if they weren't able to get to their next meal that soon. Um, it's, I would say it's 100% healthy, but it contained alcohol uh, for sure. Um, and I think you can correct me if I'm wrong. It, they, they, they did it in batches. So liquid bread was like the first batch. And I think that was about four or 5% alcohol. Is that right? And then later they had a second or third batch that could be up around the 6% alcohol. If I'm... Yeah. So they, they did uh, several runs of, of alcohol, of, sorry, of beer. And they idea for that more was to, that some beer needed to last longer and alcohol as mm-hmm. a, uh, antiseptic disinfectant um, all that preservative qualities that had made that beer last longer so they could make beer when the grains and hops were already in the autumn around that time they'd make a bunch yeah. of beer and the heavier beer the idea was it would last until the next uh, summer or whatever so yeah the, the small hmm. beer as, as some sometimes it's called then you get these extra steps where you got some of these Belgian beers which have up twelve percent alcohol and the, and these were yeah. the idea was to keep so they'd last longer, and in fact they should be drunk even years after they're brewed to get the maximum 
enjoyment out of the product. Yeah, so you can age it a little bit. Yeah. I think one of the things that you and I have also discussed is, it's, you know, they didn't know it at the time. I think they, they figured it out soon after, but they essentially could have just boiled water um, and made a safe product, and, and that was all the pathogens in the water they would have killed. Yes. But they essentially made beer their art. They, they, they used it as like a conduit of creativity. Um, and they did this by doing something so revolutionary and something that has probably affected beer drinking to this day more than anything else was crazy as it sounds. They wrote the recipes down. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we talk about the beer from Egypt and from Mesopotamia and the Fertile Crescent, but we don't know what that beer was like because we don't we don't have any written records of it. Uh, but they wrote it down. And then once you write it down, you play, you you tweak it and you you have fun. I mean, I love cooking and I love you try different spices, you substitute certain things out. And that's what they were doing. They're substituting wheat in for barley and they tried different things. And they were the ones that brought in the, the hops uh, and and. And it's just, it was a form of playing. It was almost like doing another stained glass. They did a Saison and they did something else. Yeah. And it was, it's amazing. They were actually trying to make something better to drink at the same time. Yeah. Um, and, and they did. And uh, if you go back to some of the earlier things they were trying to put in beer, they put some things, weeds and garden herbs that were around uh, that or pests that were generally poisonous. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> And would give you hallucinations if you had too much of them. Mm. You know, the old wormwood was something they used to try to add to the the, the flavor. That, um, you can still yeah. buy some of those beers, but, you know, they, they've been recorded. The good recipes were recorded enough that we have the good recipes of that kind. We know what they're doing. But, yeah, some of the beers they would have made were just experimentations that went wrong, and someone may have died in the process. <laughs> and they were clever you enough know. to, let's not do that again. What? That's awesome. But they did a lot of things. I mean, we think absence and all. You know, we, we're talking about beer and wine, but we also know the monks were pretty he- heavily involved in a lot of the spirits too that we drink. And, um, you know, some of those, absence being probably the most famous, you know, is a hallucinogen. It was until recently completely kind of illegal. And it was yeah. banned. Yeah. It, it came back pretty hard like 20 years ago. But um, it's, yeah, that <laughs> that had some. Has it had its problems? Um, yeah. So. I mean, that goes back to just how important alcohol was prior to the Industrial Revolution as well. It just was the most advanced medicinal product that they could think of, uh, kind of thing. So there they were. They tried everything with alcohol, including what you've described there with absinthe. Or, and there's still yeah. a lot of stuff we can buy, which we'll go into, but. Uh, yeah. so many little things that you that you can come across, especially in Europe. Yeah. Many of our, our listeners will have learned that one of the key reasons the church took off like it did was because of its desire to care for the poor and sick. And, I, and I'm not talking about a moralizing or culturalizing of the poor. I'm actually talking about practical service for those around them. It's physically caring for the poor and needy and the sick and the dying, being at the bedside of a plague victim because no one else would touch them. Uh, you know, the early churches noted for their extraordinary above and beyondness in, in this regard. Um, there's a quote from Jesus in Matthew 25. It's what's called the sheep and the goats parable. Uh, it was very important to the early church. It was also something the monks and nuns of the Middle Ages took very seriously. And the current pope brings it up a lot, actually. 
It says, I, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat, to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Truly, I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. For early Christians, caring for the poor and going to church went hand in hand. Just like going to church meant that you were there for mass, being an active part of the early church meant looking for ways to help the poor and infirmed and getting them all the help that they needed. Yeah, so this this goes back and ties into just why alcohol was spread and and began to be used the way it was and why it became so important. But, you know, moving into the Middle Ages, we see many of the development of the Christian communities that were making health their specific focus. This is where we begin to see the development of monasteries as we understand them today. And essentially... Yeah. They were the community development centers of the time. Yeah, There were some that closed the doors and all that, but they were the centers of learning, the places of refuge, where you sought your medical aid and all that kind of stuff that, that we uh, kind of know yeah. but don't really think yeah. about. If you had a problem, you went, you went to the monastery. The monks would help you. The nuns would help you. Yeah. And, and so anything that was going on in there that was being developed in there at the height of knowledge at that time would spread and spawn from there they were the modern mm -hmm. hospitals they were the modern universities in in that time so anything that was good and anything they learned from that time would spread out and go where it needed to do yeah now there are many orders we should note that yeah. <laughs> that did come up and many had different focuses i think for this story it's really important that we highlight the benedictines and their little offshoot orders or St. Benedict yeah. and all the little things that came off after him because these are kind of the the beer guys and yeah. also really noted for their work for the poor. So there's this correlation. It's really important to understand. Yeah. I mean, St. Benedict laid down the rules of monastic life. Uh, he declared that each monastery would have an abbot as its leader and hence known as an abbey. And that manual labor would be a part of their daily prayer. That's going to be revolutionary to think about. Yeah. Um, he required that the monks grow and make everything they needed within the abbey walls and thus be independent from any outside meddling. And during the Middle Ages, these self-sufficient communities thrived as places of order, learning, and stability. Well, a lot of what was going on around them um, was chaotic. Was not, yeah. Yeah. In these communities with, with organized work and systems and adequate resources, they were able to focus on finding solutions, uh, not just um, subsistent living. They, they actually thrived uh, during an incredibly chaotic period in history. And a part of moving on beyond subsisting was healthcare and community care beyond their, their own little zone. And one of the biggest things it's, I still find really hard to imagine was the clean water situation. Yeah. Even in like places where there's poor infrastructure, which I've been to, poor water infrastructure, you can still usually find a tap. But in that time, there wasn't even that. So it's hard to understand how significant a problem it really was. But it was at the top of the issues that needed to be addressed in Middle Ages Europe. Yeah. There was no question. And and obviously, we have those cholera, cholera, Cholera. cholera. Yeah, so you have these stories of cholera outbreaks and people dying and and all that stuff that is 
littered throughout the stories that we hear about that time. It's a bit, we're really quite beyond that, but this was massive. The water quality, the use of water, and the way that it was dealt dealt out amongst the community. We're just not here as well. You know, medieval Europe was actually probably a little bit cleaner than some of the major city cesspools of, of um, the Industrial Revolution. So things are going to get worse. And that's really hard to, yeah. to imagine. It's hard to think, yeah, the Industrial Revolution uh, in some ways was health-wise worse than the medieval period. It was. There was a lot of really bad things going on that some yeah. of the more average people w- were living through. It was yeah. better for the people that had money, probably. A lot, lot yeah. worse for the people that were coming out of these relatively stable communities. Yeah. Switching back, St. Benedict had you know, more outlines for these monasteries as they grew and they they expanded. And, and, and that was... The, they became profitable in a lot of ways, and those funds were then made to be put back into the community um, and to serve the people around them and the, and the, you know, the, the parishes and towns. Um, some of the, there's a rule, uh, St. Benedict strongly endorsed hospitality. So taking in strangers and people in need, it meant sharing beer with them, bringing them in and just giving them, a, giving them some sustenance beer, give them a, a load off. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> They're high quality beer. They, they had to share it. Yeah. And probably the biggest influence uh, that we see with the monks' in investment into brewing is their use of hops. You know, beer and hops are synonymous for most of us, um, particularly from North America, where the craft brew scene basically exploded around the mass production of hops, i.e., IPAs. Man, the IPAs craze is ever going to go away. <laughs> for those of you who don't Still know. You know, hops are a flower, a sort of, a, it's a perennial weed, but it's, yeah. They found out that it was useful to throw in the, in the vat amongst all the other things that they'd tried. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the interesting thing is it has sort of estrogen in it and it sort of calms you down a little bit. So it's kind of like one, of, one of those things. So they found out it was a good idea to throw that in there instead of some of the more hallucinogenic um other things that they were throwing in there that made people sometimes want to fight a bit more and more aggressive weeds. This was a weed yeah. that really easy to grow, really easy to find. Once you found it, once you've walked around in the forest somewhere and you found it, you'll never you'll notice it all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's in, it's an indestructible basically weed. Once you've planted it, it never goes away. I hate to be the people that deal with my garden after I leave, when I move in, in a couple of months, because <laughs> they're going to have my hops in their garden. Yeah, the wild hops. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, as far as we know, monks are the first known brewers to use it. Uh, I believe the oldest testament comes from Abbot of Althard of Corbeil, France. Uh, sorry, my American friends. France, uh, who in 1822 mentioned the use of hops. And uh, German monks began... The, the practice around 1200 and you know, finding hops useful for preservation and for flavor uh, hops gradually took over from its, uh, for its uh, preserving and flavoring process it, before it used a, a wide array of herb mixtures called groots uh, groots were, were like they bro- yeah so the, the hops gradually took over from the groot or grout as yeah. you probably say in Dutch and they were that wild cocktail of herbs that we were talking about oh yeah 
Um, yeah, as we know, those were kind of some of them had some narcotic <laughs> levels to them. Well, I do. Um, we have the list here. So you have they were using chicory, wild rosemary, bog myrtle, wormwood, mugwort, <laughs> whorehound. Try and say that quickly over and over again. <laughs> they knew how to name them, didn't they? Yeah. You find a wild herb, <laughs> it's yours to name. Yeah. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, dude. Um, yeah, I think like like I said, I think that one, Warhound, that one is poisonous in a in a larger quantity. But you know, that's why you have the. And, 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 yeah, and then hops, and then hops are just cleaner, and they, and, you know, and they're they're flavorful. I mean, I actually I love a good IPA, but um, and I and, and wasn't it King Wenchel uh, in Germany uh, that wasn't he killed because he was potentially going to start exporting hops, and the people, the Bavarians, were really um, protective of their hops at that point. There was uh, there was uh, I don't know that story. Yeah, I, I probably. If Someone will need it. to fact fact check this. Oh, you mean Good King Wenceslas? Yeah, Wenceslas. I was like Wenchel, didn't I? <laughs> Wenceslas <laughs> from the Christmas song. We all forget. Yeah, that's that. That's one of the saints of beer, and that's one of the things he did, yeah. and that's one of the reasons that beer is overemphasized its importance in our culture. Yeah. If you've enjoyed Outside Inside Out. Jacob and I would love for you to check out our friends over at Podcasters Podcast Podcast, where they talk in depth with other podcasters about podcasting and podcasts and podcraft. They are going to explore the thousand-year-old tradition of oral storytelling and how it's devolved. I mean evolved. It's great, I'm sure. Check it out. Now, something I found really interesting that you weren't expecting me to bring up now is that you found a swarm of bees this week and you tried to catch that swarm of bees. (laughs) It was so satisfying. And did you catch them? Yeah, it was. It's shockingly easy. Oh, Uh, it's not as easy to get them to incorporate into a new hive so what happened is um my where i live my mother-in-law has uh keeps bees and i'm i'm trying to take over uh the beekeeping duties and i showed up the other day and there was three um swarms essentially like small swarms and we we got one of them the biggest one we could and i set up a whole new hive um and tried to coax them in and i'm finding out hopefully tomorrow if, if they actually took to the hive uh and it they they're there in this ball they look like a like a football like an american football or a rugby ball it's about that size too and you literally just shake them into a basket because the queen's there they all just fall in to protect her okay and, and they just kind of like reform in the bottom of the basket and then you put the basket near the new hive um and hopes that it coax them in that they'll, that they'll think, oh, this is a nice, you know, warm, nice dry place, place. Yeah. So I'll find out when I get back from my trip if, if they actually took to it. Now, the reason I aptly bring that up yeah. is because monks use apiary equipment 
in the development of the tools that we use for brewing. Isn't that clever? Mm-hmm. How I just it's clever. Yeah, fit that in. And a lot of those tools were developed through that, you know, around that time. The same tools that we use today. The monks were the first people to emphasize cleaning and sanitization, which is about all you spend your time doing when you actually homebrew. <laughs> yeah. They came up with all the practices of lagering, storing beer. So the, the lager beer that 90% of people are always drinking yeah. is a beer that's made in a by storing it in a cool place that was developed in monasteries. And those all those techniques that they developed is what the secular breweries took on from and use now today. We we're still using almost all of that knowledge and all of that stuff that they wrote down. So can't be overemphasized the influence these monasteries had on beer, wine and spirits to different extents. Mm-hmm. This was the before and after scenario. Before the monasteries, we had a ragtag production of alcohol. After, we have a much more focused, much higher quality, and much more varieties of wine, beer, and spirits. And we had the basis for just about every drink we drink today from that Seriously, period of time. Ev- every drink. Except for rice wine. Yeah. <laughs> some, of the, some of the the far east asian things but mm-hmm. uh we we are have a big enough worldview to include them when we say because they're very good yeah but yeah from from what we typically find in the um, shop this is it yeah none of the monasteries started off with the idea of becoming brewers <laughs> they start off by cloistering themselves and seeing the need around them and they look for ways to meet those needs specifically the poor and just the community at large. Beer just happened to tick a lot of boxes. But also, we had educated people doing this for the first time, and they did something revolutionary, like we said. They wrote down the recipe. And once it was, res- it was written down, they played, they tweaked, they changed, they personalized. In short, they played. And they mm-hmm. played with it. They had fun. And, and um, they were able to move into a creative experience, one that, that brought joy and pleasure um yeah i love brother lawrence who talks about that he says that we ought not to be wary of doing little things for the love of god who regards not the greatness of the work but the love with which it's performed i mean that's beer for these guys transformed so much because it also transformed architecture and it transformed how they looked at communities they they, you see the monasteries changing in the way they look at creating communal places and places to gather into fellowship and to come together uh, and place to, to mourn, a place to um, lift each other up in, in, in hard times and to, to laugh in, in good times. It's that, that one thing, going from a cloister to brewing beer to creating a community to, to finding ways for that community to consistently build and um, nurture together. It's incredible what they did. To creatively find ways to fight and improve the quality of life around them. Yeah. And then, and beer is at the center of that. Yeah. And that's just one example of many things, but, but that's how we got to where we did with beer. And I think that that's what we see with the Arthur Guinness story. Uh, We see, when we got our original story down in the 
St. Mary's Primrose Hill story. That's what we began to experience. That's what we began to link together when we looked at that. The other communities here in Amsterdam that we've sort of discovered and even stories that we've been learning about since we've started writing this stuff down in in yeah, you know, beer has been a tool at the center of trying to build community. It's a creative tool. It's a tool that people enjoy, and therefore mm-hmm. it has something that unique about it that's bring people together. Yeah. So in our next episode, and and which will be the final of this series, yep. we want to explore how the pub, the meeting place to drink together, and gathering of community, is taking shape in modern faith communities. And I think how it builds on these things of that we've shared in this episode and, and the reasoning that we started off with in the, the first episode. Yeah. It, all, everything comes in circles. I mean, this one took 500 years, but we got there in the end, people. <laughs> Before we go, I thought I'd be prepared with my quotes. Yeah, were you? I did. And I think the guy that's done the so. best quotes for beer happens to be good old Chesterton. He's done some Love good Chesterton. One. So in the words of G.K. Chesterton, no animal ever invented anything as bad as drunkenness, nor as good as drink. <laughs> you just get the feeling he would have been a fun guy to hang out with. Yeah, I do too. I think so. So on that note, we'll be back. We'll be back. Thanks for listening. <laughs>